Hey guys, welcome back to session two, Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10 uh, will be the verses that we consider in this session. In the first session, we did an overview of the book of Ephesians and we introduced this theme that we're, we're looking at uh, in particular, and that is our identity in Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10, Paul does one of these formerly but now statements. Uh, in the first three verses, he tells us what our condition was before uh, we became Christians and then what God did to remedy uh, that problem. Uh, this text shows us what we need to be saved from uh, and how we're saved and then the results of, of being saved. Uh, and if you're not a Christian or if you, you meet a lot of non-Christians, this may sound like a very strange concept. I was talking to one of our church members recently uh, at his house over for dinner. Uh, his name's Dave, and Dave was telling me that uh, he never heard the, the gospel until he was in prison in uh, Los Angeles. He was uh, uh, caught selling drugs and went to jail, and he said, of all places, the first guy I ever heard share the gospel with me was the guy who was in jail with me. And his first question to me was, hey, are, are you saved? And Dave said, I had no answer. I, did, I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I asked him, saved from what? I had no clue what it meant to be saved, what it meant to be a Christian. Well, in these first three verses, we see why we need to be saved. Paul tells us that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Now, the picture is not pretty in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, but you need to hear it because the good news isn't good if you don't first get the bad news. He says in verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul says, says that we were spiritually dead. We have no spiritual life. This may be a hard concept for uh, you to hear or for people to hear in our culture. Uh, after all, people are moving around. You know, they drove to the, to the Bible study. They, uh, they, they have physical life. Um, but spiritually, we are cut off from Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no spiritual life. We are spiritually dead. We're not almost dead. We're not kind of alive. We, we were dead. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride or not, but uh, you know, Inigo Montoya brings his friend Wesley to Miracle Max. Uh, Wesley has, has been tortured, and uh, Inigo says, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's almost dead, or he's, he's dead, I think he's not breathing. And, and Miracle Max says, well, lucky for you, he's, he's not really dead. He's only almost dead. He's, he's slightly alive. Well, spiritually, we are not almost dead. We, we were dead, Paul said. And then something happens as a result of not being attached to life in Christ is we begin to live a life of disobedience. Paul says that we follow the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, that is the evil one. And we are by nature sons of disobedience. Now, we, we've been talking in Ephesians how we, we're made sons and daughters of God. We are adopted by God. And the reason we need to be adopted by God is that we were sons of disobedience. And now we're sons and daughters of God. So we were, we were dead. We were disobedient. And then Paul says, worst of all, in verse 3, we were doomed. We were, as he says at the end of verse 3, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is that we, we were object, objects of God's punishment. That we, we were not reconciled to God, but rather we were enemies of God. And this is why we need the good news of verse four. And I want you to fix your eyes on the first two words of verse four. Paul says, but God. These are two of the sweetest words in the New Testament. We were dead, we were disobedient, we were doomed, but God intervened. 
And that's the good news of the gospel. What did he do when he intervened? He's, Paul says, because God was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice the character of God here. Our God is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he emphasizes it again in verse 5 there. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So notice that. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. God made us alive. And then he says this remarkable statement. He's raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you see the character of God and the work of God. We were dead. We were disobedient. We were doomed. But God intervened. The God who is merciful, the God who is loving, the God who is kind, the God who is gracious, made us alive together with Christ. That is, we're united to Christ. That his, his death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. We are, we are in Christ, and all of this work has been accomplished by God on our behalf. Now, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. If you look at the gospel carefully and you, you look at other statements, doctrinal statements from other religions and other worldviews, what you essentially will find is that religions are based on one's performance. They're, they're works-based religions. And so in Islam, it's the five pillars of faith you have to keep. In Buddhism, it's the noble eightfold path. In Mormonism, the law of eternal progression. Um, you can go on down the list. They are, they are due religions. There are things you must do if you want to, uh, in some way, earn, merit, gain eternal life. But in Christianity, it's not due, it's done. God has done the work for us. God has made people who were dead alive. God has, instead of poured out His judgment upon us, has put forth His Son to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved and in change has given us his, his righteousness. So this gospel in verses five to seven is showing us, verses four to seven rather, showing us the amazing grace of our God, what he has done on behalf of sinners like you and like me. He has united us to Jesus. Jesus has become our substitute and now we have life. So Paul says a bit of a summary statement in verses 8, 9, and 10. He, he tells us that it is by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. In other words, the, the whole salvation event is a gift that we receive. It's not a prize we earn. We can't merit salvation. can't earn salvation. Therefore, we can't boast if we have salvation. We can't boast in that which we did not earn, Paul says elsewhere but rather this gift has come to us, right? And we now have faith in Christ Jesus. As a result of this, he says in verse 10, this, this, is, this is how you are to respond to his grace. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's our phrase again. We are in Christ Jesus and we've been created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul says to begin in, in verses one to three, Apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. In verses 4 to 7, with Christ, we are spiritually alive. Verses 8 to 10, in Christ, we are God's workmanship. We have been created for good works. So works matter to the Christian. But we're not working for salvation. We're working from salvation. We're working because God has already accepted us in Christ. 
We're not working to be accepted by Christ, but because we have received this great grace and because God has brought us from death to life, we want to serve God. We want to be his, his workers, as it were. And so this passage causes us to reflect on a number of things. And let me just point out a few. This passage should compel us to hope. And no one is beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. Because it's God who does the work of giving dead people life. Then we shouldn't lose hope on certain individuals. You know, when I became a Christian, the guy I wanted to become a Christian more than anyone was my dad. Love my dad. He was a coach. He was a good man. He was a hardworking factory worker. And I became a Christian in college, and I immediately wanted my dad to become a Christian. My dad was turned off by my new faith. I would buy him books, and he wouldn't read them. And, and this, this, uh, we had a, had a bit of a tension in our, our relationship, and we really just couldn't talk about anything related to uh, Christianity or the gospel. If we did, it didn't go anywhere. There was no spiritual life there. And then about six years ago, my dad and I had a conversation, and I don't know what happened, but God started working in his life, and he started visiting churches. And my sister was so shocked by this. She and I were texting each other, you know. We were like, hey, Dad went to church. Hey, Dad, Dad gave an offering. Uh, Dad had a Kindle, and he put the Bible on his Kindle, and then he, he ordered a book on how to read the Bible. Uh, this was all on his own. And eventually he found a church that he loved. The pastor was preaching through the book of Romans. It was a congregation of about 60 people. And my dad was, was, was beginning to be drawn to Christ when the pastor came to visit him. And he says, uh, Gary, don't you think it's about time for you to be baptized? Profess your faith publicly. And my dad said, yeah, but I really would like for my son to baptize me. He said, I don't know if he will. You know, he's, he's really busy. And he calls me up and I'm like, yeah, I think I got time for that. And so on my way to move to Raleigh-Durham to plant a church, I first drove to Kentucky and I stood up in front of this congregation with my dad in a baptistry. And my dad said, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And I got to baptize my brother and my father in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this picture of death to life, God gave life to this 60-year-old man. And he, he came to visit me about six months later and he said, son, I've read through the whole Bible. I'm like, the whole Bible? He said, yeah. He's like, I don't understand the Old Testament. I love the New Testament. <laughs> I was like, don't worry about it, Dad. We don't understand the Old Testament either. Uh, I was like, no, I'm just playing. Just keep reading it. Keep reading it. And it was amazing to me that my, here was my dad who, who knew nothing about the Bible, had, had found life in Christ. God, by his amazing mercy and grace and kindness, took him from death, brought him to life. And he, he's not ready to teach theology. You know, he's not going to be writing books, I don't think but he's a new creation. He's been brought from death to life. And this text shows us that we too should hope. Do not lose hope on people of having life. See the power of the scriptures to bring life. I have a friend named, named um, Kevin who's in Texas. He's a pastor now. And Kevin was a super smart guy. In fact, he had a scholarship offered to Yale as a senior. But, but Kevin told me, I, I was reading through the Bible as a high school student and dude, it just made no sense to me. And I had this, this is his words, this redneck from Texas who said, Kevin, let's meet every morning at McDonald's and read through the Gospel of Matthew. And he said, man, I don't know how to explain it, but by the time I got to Matthew 28, I became a Christian. And this brother's a pastor now. Yes, this text shows us that God convert the hardest of sinners. And let's not forget who's writing it. Paul himself, this one who went from a terrorist to an evangelist. Now, this text also should encourage us to worship 
This should inspire worship. Like this should cause us to stand in awe of God, right? We should be drawn to God through this text. I asked my congregation this recently, why does sin have power over you as a believer? Not all the time, but when it does, why does it have power over you? And this is my answer. It's because you love it. At some level, you love your sin. The bigger question is, how can you overcome it? And my answer is, you need a surpassing love. When your love for Christ surpasses your love for sin, you begin to change. And the question is, how do you cultivate a surpassing love, a deeper love for the Savior? And my answer is, you read the gospel a lot. You pray that God would impress truths like this on your heart, so much so that you soar in worship and that your heart would be so filled with adoration for Christ, there's no room for sin. Texts like this cause us to hope. They cause us to worship. And finally, they inspire us to work. We want to work for this Savior, not to earn salvation. We already have it. We want to serve the Savior because of the great grace which he has bestowed upon us. You know, when it's our anniversary, me and my wife, I sometimes get her flowers. And if I show up one day and I, you know, anniversary and say, hey, babe, here, here are the roses. And she asks me why I, I went out and did that. And I tell her, well, I had to. It was our anniversary. I really don't want to. She's not going to be happy with that response. That, that response doesn't honor her. But if I get to say, babe, I want to do this, this is the least I can do. You, you are everything to me. You are in a category by yourself. Something like that honors her. And when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus, we should want to serve him with gladness because of who he is and what he has done for us. He has brought us from death to life. Has that happened to you? If it has happened to you, is it inspiring you to worship? Is your love for Christ greater than your love for sin? Do you really believe Jesus is better than anything? And is this gospel compelling you to want to serve as his workmanship? You've been created for good works, good works that bring him glory. You've been created for more than Netflix. You've been created to give your life to a great mission. And in response to God's great grace, let's get on that mission. <music>